of We Talk Comics, this time it's a WTC special, as we speak with Kill Shakespeare's Connor McCreary, but before we get to him, I am, of course, your crown prince of charisma, Mo, with me, once again, the chief, chief defender of the, the faith, he is the king of the casters, he is Mr. Brett Podcast. Podcasting all the way. And Chris is on the line with us, Chris Selfie, the man with no nickname. Chris I Besty. am less drunk than usual tonight. You messed you messed that up, man. It's yeah. Chris Bestie. What I say? You said Chris Selfie. Oh, well, apparently you haven't been on his Instagram. Do Do you take a lot of selfies, Chris? I don't think I've ever taken one. Yeah, that's good. I photobomb. I seem to accidentally photobomb my cons a lot. And speaking but- of selfies, Connor. <laughs> you guys told me you had Skype camera off. How did you see I was taking a series of stuff? Look, Instagram filters are just something I'm trying to figure out, and it's totally my prerogative if I want to take photos of myself in my PJs. What? It's a classy thing to do. Well, absolutely. Well, your PJs I'm okay with, but geez, man, put some clothes on. Hey, a birthday suit PJs are still PJs. It's flesh colored. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's like it's like I'm doing a love scene on a major Hollywood set. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Yeah, we're going to stop right there. So anyways, Connor, for the uninitiated, because we've had you on the show. You've, you've been in like panels at uh, the Connor. I think you were on one of our panels, uh, uh, We Talk Comics Live at uh, Calgary Expo a few years ago. And, and, you, and uh, you and Anthony were quickly together on a really short interview. But you yourself, by yourself, never had to carry a show all by yourself for us. Number one, don't let us down. Number two, for the uninitiated, tell everyone who you are and why you're awesome. Uh, 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 there's, well, there's no pressure, don't worry about it. you asked me that question. Uh, there's many different reasons I'm awesome, but first I'll start off with who I am. Uh, my name is Connor McCreary. Uh, I'm a, a comic book writer. I'm probably best known for co-creating uh, the series Kill Shakespeare with the excellent Anthony Delcall. Uh, and yeah, Kill Shakespeare for the uninitiated is sort of a, if Game of Thrones and Shakespeare had a drunken one-night stand, we're the illegitimate baby that gets left behind for the White Walkers. It's uh, action-adventure story, all of Shakespeare's characters in the same world, and then pit against each other on this quest to end all tragedy. Uh, but beyond that, I've also written um, Holmes vs. Houdini for Dynamite Comics, uh, Assassin's Creed at Titan, um, then a little bit of a... Uh, freelance work for a couple of other companies, uh, and I've got a couple of new series uh, that I can't say too much about yet that'll be coming out next year as well. But I but think off we're off air, new right? Kill Shakespeare stuff. Sorry, off air though, you're going to tell us everything, right? Oh, psh, duh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. That's all I care about. I'm not really here for the listeners, it's really just kind of for me. <laughs> all right, I, I cut it on your plug there, but 
but uh, right at the end. But uh, everybody, check out what what do you where do they go to check you out right now? Uh, right now, you can check. Well, just obviously my Instagram feed with all those <laughs> pictures of me and my birthday PJs. Um, no, we're uh, driving. You traffic. don't want to do that if you've got a low, if you've got like a high vomit point, you know. And so this might be disturbing <laughs> for you. Um, I would suggest instead to go to either uh, killshakespeare.com, our Facebook page, Kill Shakespeare. Uh, we do a lot of stuff on Twitter under Kill Shakespeare as well. And you can find me on Twitter at uh, Connor McCreary as well. Uh, and I'm a one-end Connor for those of you at home. All right, we've probably got about a million questions for you, Connor, so we might as well jump right into it. Brett, Chris, who wants to jump in first? I will. Um, why literary characters? Um, you know, the pretentious high school kid in me loves it, but Shakespeare and Arthur Conan Doyle don't seem like an obvious jump on, uh, jump on point for comic books. Um, why not superheroes or, you know, something remotely sane? <laughs> <laughs> That's remotely sane nowadays. <laughs> well, hey, first, that, that presupposes that I'm remotely sane. No offense, <laughs> but like, take no offense to any of our questions, please. <laughs> And again, you know, if you check my Instagram and my birthday PJs, I think we'll see that that's probably not the case. Um, no, I mean, I think, you know, it's kind of, that's a good question, actually. I, I think, you know, I think my background was, uh, was as a journalist, but also in doing a little bit of film and television. And, uh, you know, the first kind of things, I, I did kind of some kids superhero-y stuff in kids TV that got optioned and we were developing it. It never ended up getting made. So I think in some ways I, I feel like I, I cut a little bit of, and then I wrote actually another kids uh, superhero story as a animated feature that I got some money from to develop. And again, sort of, you know, back, back when I wrote this, nobody was making animated films, but basically Disney and Pixar uh, back when those were two separate things. Um, and so I think in some ways I got a little bit of the superhero story out of me. But I think one of the big things was I, I was a lot, a lot of people. I, I really loved comics when I was growing up and I got to a certain age and I, you know, I, I think I just felt like I wasn't supposed to be able to enjoy them anymore. I wasn't, you know, I was supposed to be too old to like comics. And so it became this sort of guilty pleasure when I would come home from university, you know, curling back up in my parents' house, you know, kind of being in that familiar setting, I'd dig out all my old Marvels, you know, all my old, uh, it was really, actually, it was mostly Marvel, and or if I was really lucky during the holidays, I'd get to go visit my uh, my mean Uncle Joe, who had a whole closet filled with Silver Age books, and that was kind of my, oh, well, it's all right to read that now, um, and what kind of got me back into comics is I was actually working on one of those kids' shows I'd mentioned, and at the time, I was like, okay, hey, at any moment, this could be the big thing for me next. I, I, I need to have a job that I can step away from at a moment's notice, and I ended up getting a gig at the Silver Snail, which for those of you who know anything about sort of, I would say arguably even Canadian comics, the Silver Snail was arguably the first great comic shop maybe in all of Canada. And, you know, I got a chance to work there. And when I was, you know, kind of getting reintroduced to the medium, at that point it was, you know, Sandman was a few years old, but not that many. Transmetropolitan was kind of just about a third of the way through its run. Um... Bendis had been releasing some of his independent stuff like Torso. And so I ended up just kind of getting thrown into these really 
I guess I would call them super literate comics. And I think it's just changed my mind on, on what a comic could do. And, you know, Anthony and I have been working on the Kill Shakespeare idea and we weren't quite sure what it was. Like, what was it a comic book? Was it, was it a TV show? Was it a movie? And the more we looked at comics, the more we thought, you know, maybe we can do this. But as a superhero side of things, uh, you know, Anthony, when we first pitched at IDW, he was able to sell it by basically telling IDW that it was the Justice League of Shakespeare. So everything does eventually come back to superheroes. And Andy Belanger, the artist, has always said that Othello is his Incredible Hulk. So, you know, there you go. It's always, it always comes back to superheroes on some level. Was he into the Silver Snail as well? No, Andy. Um, uh, no, it was just me who was working at the Silver Snail. Andy was, Andy was just kind of breaking through in his career. We were sort of the first uh, kind of series he had done he had been doing a bunch of like single issues and and some fill-in stuff, and yeah, we just kind of got him at the right time. Um, you know, I know Kill Shakespeare definitely helped him blow up, but I think, you know, I think he would have blown up without us. You know, he's he's just that good. Yeah, it's interesting because with you guys, it's it's almost like you really decided to go and just forge your own path, and then let the rest kind of fall into place behind you. And and I think that, you know, so many people look at comics and think, okay, well, I've got to write the superhero stuff first so that then I can go and do what I really want to do. And you just said, you know, screw that. I'm going to do what I really want to do. And then we'll write other stuff after. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. I mean, I think also, I think one of the things too is it's hard to get a superhero book, right? Like, you know, I think especially in the last eight to ten years where the big two have kind of I think they've recognized how much depth they have in their bench. You know, I think, you know, there was a time where, yeah, maybe you could kind of with the right meeting or two get a shot and be told, yeah, hey, here's Blue Beetle or here's, you know, She-Hulk or something. But I feel like nowadays, like there's really great writers coming in and pitching really cool stuff on all these quote unquote B or C characters. So you know, I, I think it's tough to get it with the superheroes. I mean, I, hey, I'm like everybody. I'm like any other comic book writer. I've got a Batman story. You know, I'd love to tell one day. I sometimes think, you know, weirdly enough, weirdly enough, all the stories I have, it's like Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. I feel like I have like a kind of an interesting pitch for all three of those. But I was a Marvel kid growing up. And if you told me like, hey, what's your amazing Spider-Man pitch? I'd be like, uh, I don't know. I just like to read them. <laughs> So, so Batman fighting Shakespeare, that, that's the pitch, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, come on. Batman versus Shakespeare is a little on the nose. Obviously, it's Batman and Hamlet. Yeah. Ah, right. Talk, talk about the two dark knights. <laughs> that would be great. No, it's, it's interesting, though, because I know that you, uh, you, you ended up getting published with IDW like right away, right? And I mean, you kind of – how you got – that I, I think that story is already out there, but uh, you, I guess you end up with it. I don't from talking to you before you were at the New York Comic Con, you were pretty inventive in how you got in the door to meet people. Uh, let's just say I don't want to say you, you lied about anything, but you might have been inventive. Is that correct? <laughs> we, were can- we were Canadian media mavens, and I dare anybody to prove it. <laughs> and, anyways, you ended up getting published. Uh, now, tell the truth though, I mean, that very first series, you. What are your expectations? Were you thinking this is going to, you're going to have a second volume? Were you amazed you're just having that first one? I mean, because it it has been successful, but the con, and, and in a lot of ways, I understand that it's more successful in, in the trade paperback form, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Kill Shakespeare is more of a trade book than a single issue book, I think. 
Um, I mean, I, it's, I mean, what were we thinking? We were we we really felt we could get we really felt we could get a couple of trades. I mean, we had a good rapport with IDW, and I, I think we came around at a good time for IDW in that. You know, they'd had thirty days of night, and that had been a success for them. But th- at that point, they weren't really known as an IP factory, more as a licensed company. I mean, they still licensed books are still their bread and butter. But I think they were looking for something like Ted Adams. You know, is a really like he's kind of a polymath, right? Like he's got a lot of different interests. He's a really interesting, smart guy. You know, and the same with Greg Goldstein, right? Like these are not guys who only have you know. Oh yeah, all they ever wanted to do was write, you know, Superman, you know, and tried to make some company that let them do that and you know do their versions of that. Like they they're interested in a lot of different stuff, and so I, I think we came at the right time where they were going to be willing to give us a little bit of rope to see what this weird, you know, Lord of the Rings Shakespeare thing could be. So yeah, you know, when we went in there, I mean, we went in there and we were like, yeah, the first the first arc is twelve issues, and they were kind of like, oh, okay. And they're like, well, let, how about you guys start with six, which is one more than we normally do, but why don't we start with six? And, you know, we got about three or four issues in, and everybody liked it. And they're like, okay, if you guys want to do the next six, we'll find a way to make it work. Um, you know, and, and thankfully the book was selling well enough that it, was, it wasn't that much risk from them to, to do it. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, it, you know, it was a different way. I mean, Anthony and I, you know, when we first approached it, we also – tried to raise some money before we did anything so we could pay Andy a living wage without IDW having to get into this whole game of like, well, what's the page rate and how much of the, of the idea are they going to own? And, you know, they didn't really want to get into that world either. And so it worked pretty well. And because of that, I think we felt confident that we could tell a 12 issue story. Now I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, we probably could have told that in 10, but you know what? That's part of learning as a writer too. And I'm glad, I'm glad we had that canvas where we could kind of indulge ourselves a little bit to sort of figure out what kind of writers we really were. Okay, so then as you're doing as you're doing the new work, then how is that old how's the older experience then impacting your new work? Cuz now you're doing uh like these are four issue. How long is Juliet? So yeah, Juliet's four issues. Yeah, okay. So the last couple then will have been will have been four issues. So is that is that more of a conscious decision to get shorter, or is that just the fact that you're better writers and you're able to kind of condense it a little bit more into a tighter four issue span? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I, I you know I think part of it is, um, you know, part of it is the market's changed and people are nervous. I think about putting longer than four or five issue trades out there just because. You know, it's it's hard to make sure, you know, like our, our first two books, you know, like they were big books. I mean, they're six issues and, you know, we're selling them at 20 bucks and that's fine. But I think from publisher standpoint, just because there's so many more books on the shelves now, I think people are sort of like, hey, we got to make sure we got to make sure that these that the business side of things makes sense. So it's a little bit of that. But no, it's, I think it's more what you said. I think in terms of being able to write a story more concisely, realizing that you can tell a really packed, interesting story and learning kind of what stuff to cut out. Um, and, you know, the other thing is we do have a little bit of freedom. So like in Juliet, the first two issues are both 22 pages, which is, you know, not the usual for IDW necessarily, but it's not a crazy length. But the last two are 28 pages each. So you're almost getting five issues in this four issue run. Um, and that was something that, 
you know, we felt it was just going to work better. Like, I, you know, I think both us and IDW are big fans of, hey, if you can give a reader more value for their dollar, then they're going to think positively on you as a creative company and also as the creators. So, you know, that's I'm, I'm excited to see what people think when they get those last couple of books and like, wow, hey, there's a there's a bunch of extra pages in here. Sweet. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because I have only read the series in trade, so it's it's difficult almost to to imagine what it's like to read it on a on a single issue basis. Now, does it come out monthly when it comes out? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, Julia, it's going to be the first ones next week. So March 29th is the debut of issue one, and then it'll basically be every four it should be every four and i think this i think issue two is five weeks after issue one and then the next two i think will both be four weeks after uh the previous issue how how mapped out is your overall overall arc for kill shakespeare um do you have an ending plan do you know know how many volumes um it's going to be and it's changed a little bit like when we first started i think we thought it might i think we thought we might be able to do it in like three or four books, but the story, the story became bigger. So I feel like, I feel like the, the second act and the early part of the third act are, there's more going on than we maybe at first realized. But yeah, I mean, you know, if you ask me today, like, where did I, like, what do I think, where do I think Kill Shakespeare is going to go and how it's going to end? Yeah. There's a clear, clear thought in my mind of what that looks like, how, um, you know, how Lady Macbeth fits into that, how, Juliet fits into that how Romeo fits into that what's going to happen to Hamlet um and then kind of how do we you know I've got a pretty clear idea of like okay how do we end off this story and keep the door open to do other stuff in the world but have told not just the complete story you got in the first two trades which you know I was pretty happy with you know I think both Anthony and I were very happy and we're like hey if that's all we did it would have been you know would have felt like something complete but we've got you know, we've got a bigger, a bigger idea, but you know, stuff keeps them happening. Like, like one big story, like Anthony loves Beatrice and Benedict from much ado about nothing. And we just didn't quite know, well, where would, where do they fit in this big narrative we were talking about? And then the most recent book, Tide of Blood kind of took us in a direction we weren't necessarily a hundred percent expecting. And that opened the door. So, you know, when we kind of get back, like Juliet is a bit of a flashback story, kind of filling in a little bit of how this character got to where she is in our story. Um, you know, for those who aren't familiar with Kill Shakespeare, in our world, Juliet is a leader of this rebellion. She survived her ordeal with Romeo, and it's five or six years later. And people really love that character. And we're always kind of like, how did she? But, like, it's so cool that she's this, you know, this prince, you know, this princess Leia on steroids. But how, how did she become that person? And this was kind of our way of wanting to answer that. But when we kind of jump back into the main storyline, you know, I think the next one might be that Beatrice and Benedict story, fleshing out a little bit more of of kind of what was happening off stage, if you will, during books three and four. Well, certainly, uh, you know, you mentioned Juliet and the popularity of her. One of the things I've noticed from when I've uh, I've talked to you and been with you in conventions and, and seen you at the table is that you seem to be selling an awful lot of your books to a female demographic. Uh, do you think the Julia character is a part of that? Uh, have you noticed that as well? And and what do you kind of attribute that to? Uh, I mean, I think Shakespeare kind of skews. I think Shakespeare and theater maybe skew a little female overall. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably part of it. I think you get, I think, you know, I think there's been pretty good word of mouth about Juliet. I mean, I, we've got 
a lot of really positive feedback about her and about Lady Macbeth. Um, we actually got the Assassin's Creed gig was something that they asked us to pitch on because one of the editors at Titan had read Killed Shakespeare and loved Juliet and thought she was one of the best female characters she'd read in quite a while. So I think I think there's a lot of female readers who are reacting strongly to that, which makes, you know, I certainly feel really good about that. And yeah, and I, I think, you know, and again with Juliet, I think she's a weird character in that like nowadays when you look at her, she seems like she she doesn't seem as strong and interesting as she probably seemed in Shakespeare's time. I think nowadays young women look at her and they're kind of like, wait a second, she barely knew this guy and then got all kind of, you know, tied up on him and then killed herself. Like, she's not exactly the kind of person that a lot of girls are like, yeah, I want to be Juliet. <laughs> and so we kind of wanted to redeem Juliet because she is so much, she's so much stronger as a character than she kind of gets seen today. Now, is is there any uh, characters of Shakespeare you've just decided to stay away from? There was one. Um, <clears throat> actually, okay, there's there's a couple. So first of all, we decided that like obviously, like you know, if you really know your your history, and you're looking at the timelines between you know the Henry plays and Richard plays and King John and Romeo and Juliet, like there are hundreds and hundreds of years that separate these plays. But we've kind of just said, well, they all kind of feel medieval-y. So the average person doesn't really know that, you know, Romeo and Juliet is, you know, I think 250 years before uh, Hamlet. <clears throat> and it doesn't matter. But like Cleopatra, Julius Caesar, we made an early decision that those characters were in the history of our world. Because for a contemporary reader... People think of Cleopatra and Julius Caesar as a hell of a lot earlier than Shakespeare. And people are aware that there is a bit of an, an anachronism. Like Julius Caesar and, you know, someone like King Richard shouldn't really be contemporaries. So we decided those characters, if and when they appear, they only appear kind of in, in those short backstories or as like a, as something mentioned as like the history of the world. But one, one of the kind of contemporary characters that we were asked when we first started this series we did an interview with NPR and this guy called in from Texas said he loved the idea and asked us if we could use Shylock to help end all anti-Semitism and we were like we would love to use Shylock to do that but we kind of feel that might be above our pay grade and Anthony and I it's kind of been like task. <laughs> yeah it was a very odd question I mean, it was it was cool right I was like wow I mean, you really have a real a lot of faith in like literature and I guess kill Shakespeare in particular <laughs> um but we kind of Anthony and I've been like you know Shylock what do you do with Shylock right like if you make him this like unrepentant good guy then you kind of change who the Shakespearean character is and it feels like you're sort of you know washing out the complexity of the character but if he's too much of a villain then are you falling into the trap that a lot of people now look back and are like, yeah, Shylock's kind of a problematic character. Like, you know, he's he's not, you know, it's kind of hard to feel, hard to know what you're supposed to feel about that character. So we were like, we're not going to do Shylock. It's too loaded. It's too political. Let's leave it alone. But he is in the new series. <laughs> So, and I'm very, I'm kind of curious to see whether anybody gives a rat's ass that he's in the series, whether people do kind of look into him as much as they looked into Shakespeare's Shylock, or because it's a comic book, he's going to not get as much um, attention, 
or if he does, whether people will think we did a really cool thing with him. All I can tell you for sure is that we know that we, we know the Hebrew is right. That's all we know about Shylock at this point. Yeah, I mean, how important then is it to get as much right as humanly possible? Uh, I mean, it's important, but it's not, it doesn't, I don't think it supersedes a great story, right? I think the most important thing you want to do is tell a great story. Uh, there's actually a dramaturg that kind of helps us out. So he was actually just sending me some notes on issue four. And there was a few things where he's like, well, like for this character, like, from this, you know, from the Shakespeare canon, I don't know if this character would, you know, there's a character who's part of a traveling group of players, which is a very Shakespearean trope, and he claims to be a clown. And the dramaturg was sort of like, you know, he wouldn't probably ever claim to be a clown. He's not really that guy. But for what we were doing in the story, I think it fit pretty well. And I was kind of like, yeah, but he only claims to be a clown. So you don't know if he really is one. So I feel like that's where we have a little bit of room uh, and I also think that one of the things I've definitely learned when we play with the Shakespeare characters is if we do do something different, there's almost always some sort of, there's almost always a Shakespeare scholar out there who's going to come forward and be like, you know, it's interesting you have that interpretation because there's this minor theory that says exactly <laughs> what you just said. So, I mean, people have like analyzed Shakespeare to death. So there's really nothing we can do that's crazy off the beaten path. So... Yeah, I mean, but the flip side, though, is yeah. I mean, you want to, you know, you want to try to get quotes right. You want to try to make these characters feel like the characters from the plays, or at least if they're not, then give them a really interesting reason, like Juliet, to be different. Um, and yeah, with someone like Shylock, like because he's such a, because he's a character that's been argued over so much, um, you know, and you know, probably also because I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood and had tons of Jewish friends and. You know, didn't realize that, that was maybe not the usual until I got to college and, you know, met a whole other group of people who were Jewish who were really surprised that I knew anything about Judaism. <laughs> maybe, because of, maybe because of that, I take it a little more seriously. But, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to have a character that people make you know, grand sweeping generalizations about an entire religion or race or gender, you know? Like, you want to be, you want to write good characters. So five volumes in, how much reference do you actually do now? Um, do you have to read Taming of Shrew once again um, for the next volume? Or I, just that sounds horrible. I hate Taming of the Shrew. Um, <laughs> but 10 Things I Hate About You is really good. <laughs> I'm I'm just wondering how much you have to look up now. I mean, I think by this point you should have most some of the plays at least memorized. It seems. Um, no, <laughs> you guys think way too highly of us. Um, no, I mean actually for this one, I did probably the least amount of reference work that I've done for any of the books. Um, part of that was because Juliet is a character we've done a lot of stuff with already. And Romeo and Juliet is a play that we've spent a lot of time with, so I was relatively familiar with that. But generally, like, how I work with Kill Shakespeare is, you know, I'll, I'll normally go into the story when I'm figuring out what the story is. There'll be two or three moments in each issue where I'm like, okay, yeah, that's clearly this moment from Shakespeare. And I just kind of make a little note to it to myself and remember to go back and dig into that part of whatever play it is to kind of refresh myself. But a lot of times what happens is, you know, I'll write it in our kind of, hopefully, our own little bit of poetic, uh, you know, our own poetic style. 
And then I'll get to certain situations and I'll be like, okay, I, I know what I'm trying to say here. You know, it's a comment about jealousy or love or revenge or whatever. And you know, then you're like, okay, so that's a theme that Shakespeare had a lot to say on. And then I start digging into plays where I know that that theme has come up, you know, and sometimes I'm reading a play. Sometimes I'm using um, like a, a website, which has like Shakespearean quotes group by theme. And then I'll be like, oh, yeah, that is a good one. And then I'll dig back and reread that scene to make sure I'm using it right. Or there might not be something even better in that scene. Uh, and then sometimes there's a great website called Shakespeare's Words, where you can search the all the text of the plays by word so like if you want to see how many times Shakespeare said magistrate you can find out how many times he said it and where he said it and that often is very useful when I've got if I have kind of an unusual word I put in there I often am like oh did Shakespeare use this word and that's where I often find new quotes that I'm not even aware of you know or forgotten and I'm like oh yeah wow that's that's a really cool turn of phrase huh, I'll just steal that from you Mr. Shaky so how do you and the correct answer was Cole's notes yeah, yeah, exactly, right? So how do you approach the dialogue when you're doing something like Shakespeare then in, in this format? Because there's a the Shakespearean speak, and some people, though, that would be a turnoff, and yet you want to be true to it. So how do you approach that? Uh, I mean, we always used to joke that we kind of, you know, we kind of pretend we're writing old school Thor. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, I mean... I think we, I think like looking back at the first couple of, you know, trades of Kill Shakespeare, we were still figuring out that balance of like what's poetic and what's just overwritten. And there are, there are definitely, you know, I mean, you know, I think you always look back at your older work and you cringe a little. There are definitely some sections of that where I'm like, eh, like I wish I'd, you know, I wish I'd been a little more succinct, but there are a few places too where we look back and it's like, oh, we probably could have pushed the envelope language-wise a little bit. Um, I think that's one of the fun things about comics is, you know, and you know, I think Kill Shakespeare would, attracts this kind of readers. You you can kind of play around with words in the way that you wouldn't do in a film because you're reading them, and as long as you read them and you enjoy reading them, you don't have to worry about whether an actor nailed it or not. Um, but yeah, I would say like I think I've gotten definitely I've gotten better um, at being more succinct with how we write and still having a little bit of that, you know, making it feel a little bit like a Shakespearean play. Um, at least we're told we've done a good job. I mean, you know, one of the nicest compliments we've got is, you know, from people who are you know both just just everyday comic book readers and people who are big Shakespeare nerds, and you get a, both people are like, yeah, like. The Shakespeare nerds are like, yeah, like this is really, it makes me, it reminds me of the language of the bard sometimes, which is great. And you get people who are just, you know, everyday comic nerds who are like, I kind of thought this would be like super fluffy and boring, but like it's pretty punchy. And Shakespeare is pretty punchy, really. So, you know, fingers crossed, hopefully we are just getting better and better at that. So now the last time we talked, you were doing the board game. How did that work out for you? It was great. It was so cool. It was such an amazing experience. We got to work with these two really cool designers out of Belgium, and they made this kick-ass game that, like, I mean, it's a deep game. This is not a, hey, it's 9 o'clock, let's play a quick game, you know, before, like, Star Trek reruns hit at 10. This is like, okay, let's everybody get here at 6. It's going to be 25 minutes, 30 minutes to teach the new people the game, and we're going to be doing this. Like, that's what we're doing this evening. So, you know, by turn five, we're all going to be pretty drunk. Um, 
<laughs> so yeah, it, it was cool, and I love those really deep games. I mean, it's it's a very it's a very elegantly designed game, and it's just cool. It's just cool to see board game like board game aficionados are a different type of person than you know comic aficionados, and so it's just satisfying to see. I learned a lot looking at how they critiqued the game and what they liked and what they didn't like. Really taught me a lot, and yeah, I don't know. It's just it's I've got a copy of the game in my in my in my closet it's it's i just feel of all the things that we've done when i got my like kickstarter super deluxe version of the game that was the thing i was probably the most proud of that we've done you know period do you sell them at the shows that you do then or is that just uh only available elsewhere we do we do we do so we do uh sell them at the shows um we normally we don't normally like bring like we often sell out of them because we don't bring a ton of stock just because like they're heavy games. To bring <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we definitely do sell them at shows, and you know people can buy them online. I mean, it's been a few years now, so I'm not even sure. Uh, I mean, I know a couple of the major distributors still sell them through their you know sell them through the the, the world. And I mean, you know, one of the things about Kill Shakespeare is. You know, people are always seem to be discovering it for the first time. I'm always shocked by how many people, even though the books, the first book's been out there now for almost, you know, gosh, over five years, how many people will walk up and be like, yeah, I've heard that this is this totally new thing. And then they see that there's like four books on the table and they're like, how quickly do you guys write? Um, so people are always discovering it. So it's, it's kind of satisfying. We always get an email or a Facebook message every few weeks of like, hey, you guys have a board game? Awesome. I just played it. It's amazing. <laughs> So now we've heard good things on the uh, on the television front for you. Is there is there good news in that uh, regard? Yeah, yeah, we're working with Amazon um, on a pilot script for Kill Shakespeare TV show. When do you expect that? Uh, like, so so how does the, how does that process work then for us? <laughs> for, to, for, for us no, to okay. understand <laughs> what, what you're going through, I guess is the better way to put it. You you guys send in your dialogue. We pick the same way. The same way it works when you ghostwrite the comic books. I love this system. (laughs) Just just accept it instead of getting paid five cents a word. Now it's all the way up to fifty cents a word. Um, So yeah. So basically, what happens is, so we pitched um, we pitched NBC Universal last year, two years ago now actually, and got them interested in the idea, and then. They worked with us to take the pitch we gave them and make it as strong as possible. And then we went out and, and talked to a bunch of different producers, or uh, sorry, different uh, broadcasters. And Amazon was the one that was the best fit. And so then we started working with Amazon the last couple of months and as kind of a more senior writer to take the pitch of the pilot episode we gave them to sell the show and really flesh it out and make it as strong as possible. So we're just now in the process of working with that senior writer to take, uh, to kind of go through the an outline of this of that script, so we can really make sure that everything works the way it needs to work, and then we can start writing the pilot. And knock on wood, the pilot will be done in the next month or two, and then we'll you know we'll kind of hear back from Amazon in terms of do they want to shoot the pilot, do they think it's so good they want to get another script from us and maybe go straight to series. Um, you know, we'll find out. It's all it's all very interesting. The TV world is is I'm learning is very tortoise in the hair. 
for a long time, it seems like everybody's a tortoise, and then all of a sudden, it's just rabbits racing everywhere, and things move incredibly quickly, and you're sort of like, ah, what happened the last three months? We only have a week to get it done? Okay, let's do it. But it's, it's exciting. It's a very exciting world to be in. Is it a direct translation of the first arc, or is it just kind of based on the world that you've created and a fresh take? And yeah, it's, it's, a more, more, it's a little more based in the world. Like, one of the big... It was interesting, like, you learn how the two mediums are different. Like, one of the first things we got told by the senior writer was, guys, you've got too many big asks. And what he meant by that was, um, there's, you know, in a TV show, he's kind of like, you know, you can ask your audience to kind of just accept one major thing about the world. But if you ask them to accept too many major things without asking questions, you get problems. And so, obviously, for Kill Shakespeare, the major ask is like, okay, you just we just ask you to believe that there is a Shakespearean Pangea out there. We're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of exactly how it all happens off the top. And he's like, that's cool. People accept that. The problem had, if you, you know, for those of you who know the comic, is you know that in the comic, Hamlet is actually like in Denmark proper. He's not in the Shakespeare world. And it's while he's traveling to England where this pirate attack happens, which is from the play, that he gets kind of sucked into this almost like magical storm, which deposits him into our Shakespeare world. And we did that in the comic because we didn't want Shakespeare. We didn't want Hamlet to know too much about Shakespeare. We wanted him to be the conduit in for the reader so that Hamlet would be asking questions that a reader might ask. In this, in the Kill Shakespeare TV show, it, you know, the head writer was like, well, okay, so you're going to ask everybody to believe that there's a Shakespeare world, but yet Hamlet isn't in it. He's in another world. And then he's going to get pulled into the world. And so you're going to have people wondering, well, what's happening back in Hamlet's world? And if Hamlet's world, is that our real world? Like... Could I visit Shakespeare World? He's like, it just asks too many questions. So that was one of the biggest changes is now we had this situation where Hamlet is part of the Shakespeare World. He's aware of Richard and Lady Macbeth and all these other characters. He knows they exist. And that meant we had to change a major thing, which in the comics, Shakespeare is a thing that everybody knows exists. Some people believe that he's real and other people are like, no, no, he's not real. But nobody, like, if you went around the, the comic book world and said, hey, do you know who William Shakespeare is? They'd either be like, oh, yeah, he's God, or, yeah, he's that thing that people think is God. In the TV show, Shakespeare, nobody knows he exists. He's kind of this hidden mystery that is going to be kind of uncovered as the first couple of seasons uh, go on. I mean, it seems like a small change, but it's actually, it's massive. Like, it changes everything in terms of how the character, like, a lot of Kill Shakespeare had a little bit of like a little bit of an undercurrent of like religious stuff. You had someone like Falstaff who's believes in Shakespeare and his faith makes him a good guy. And then you had people like Romeo who believed in Shakespeare, but his faith made him a villain. And someone like Juliet who sort of believed in Shakespeare, but kind of believed you had to take care of yourself first. So I guess like Shakespeare helps those who help themselves. And then a guy like Othello who's like, well, I don't really believe in Shakespeare or not believe in Shakespeare. If he's, if he encourages people to fight tyranny Great, he's useful, and if not, I don't really care. So all that kind of subtext, which was a big part of the comics, doesn't really exist in the TV show, or at least won't for a while, because, you know, huge spoiler alert, people don't really know Shakespeare exists. That's fascinating, actually. As somebody who's read the comic book, just to, for me, as, as a potential viewer, as somebody who's read the comic book, that, that makes me even more excited to see it, because I am seeing something fresh. Something I'm familiar with, but something that's fresh still. Yeah, and I think we, you know, like one of the also things, I mean, comics, 
you only have like four or five issues in your first arc. You got to cover a lot of ground, and you know, TV, you, you, you know, you have a lot more time to do things. So, like one other change we're looking at very seriously is the idea that when we start the story, Macbeth and Richard, who are sort of a, a duo in the comics, they won't even know each other when when the series starts, and that we're actually going to start with Lady Macbeth and Macbeth, and we're actually going to kind of examine, okay, like in our world. They, you know, they won. They didn't, you know, Macbeth doesn't die at the end of his story. Lady Macbeth doesn't kill herself. Kill herself. They actually are rulers of their own land and held on to it. And we're going to kind of study, like, well, how does that fall apart? Like, what takes two people who were able to basically conquer a land together, what is it that could tear them apart? And, like, it's almost like kind of looking at the dissolution of a marriage, in this weird fantasy adventure space. And, you know, that's the stuff that I get really jazzed about TV-wise, where you can, like, you know, if you were going to pitch a comic and be like, oh, yeah, it's about the dissolution of a marriage, <laughs> you know, like, even if the execution, people be like, wow, that was, like, I, that stuff happens in comics, and people really, I think they do like it. But you would never pitch a storyline that way, where, you know, we can do this and be like, yeah, like, we're going to follow Lady Macbeth and Macbeth as they're searching for, like, this ultimate power and watch how it tears their marriage apart. And that's where I think, you know, somebody who's maybe not a Shakespeare fan or maybe not a, a fantasy adventure fan might tune in and be like, oh, yeah, that's my favorite storyline because it makes me think of, like, my own marriage or it asks interesting questions about love. And, you know, that's something that anybody can relate to. Now, of course, there's bound to be those other people who go, you know, the comic book is better or you shouldn't have changed this or why did you change this? And they almost become readers. They almost become protective of it. Like it's, it's almost like it's theirs and not yours because everybody, for everybody, it's their own unique experience as they read it. And I would argue it is more theirs than ours. You know, I think like, I think that's the truth. Once you put something out into the world, it's not yours anymore, right? Like the whole point of me, of creating anything, whether it's a story or music or whatever it might be, is to give it to other people. And yeah, and it is theirs. And, you know, they have every right to be protective of it and frustrated or excited. And, you know, I think you, you know, I think when you listen to your audience, you, you, you learn some good things. I don't think you should ever let that change something you're passionate about. But there are lots of times, for sure, where people have made comments about how we're doing things with our characters or our story. And I'm like, wow, that's a really, that's actually a really interesting take. Um, like part of, we had been planning to do this with Kill Shakespeare anyways, but like the third book, we really start to focus on Lady Macbeth a little more. You get to understand like what makes her tick. And we always had planned to do that at some point. Cause you know, we knew in the first, the first big arc, she's more of just a quote unquote villain. Um, but we got a lot of comments, especially from women readers who are like, I love Juliet and Lady Macbeth is really cool but I'm worried that she could slip into like one of those stereotypical like, oh, you've got the, the virginal Juliet and you've got the evil, evil, sexy lady Macbeth. And, you know, I really hope that that just isn't all she is. And that made us really decide that, hey, we wanted to get that Lady Macbeth story into that third book um, as quickly as possible because we, we'd always wanted to do something like that anyways. Uh, and it also kind of changed a little bit about how we had Juliet and Hamlet and Juliet and Romeo's relationship in the third book play out because we didn't want Juliet to come across as, yeah, this like, you know, this Madonna-esque, you know, huh. I mean Madonna, not the woman who wrote the book. <laughs> like, Madonna. Madonna. We kind of wanted to take her from Madonna, Madonna? to Madonna. Madonna. 
Yeah, you got to be careful. You don't want plastered all over Twitter. That's not my Lady Macbeth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, you got to be careful. Now, one other question, actually, since we're talking about the TV show and the changes, uh, potential change, and I don't know if this has come up or something you've thought about or haven't thought about, but I know that Amazon and a lot of the streaming services, but Amazon being one of them and the one you're working with, obviously, a lot of their uh, self-produced content is generally it's TVMA and are, are kind of uh, aiming more towards an adult audience. And your book is kind of in that PG-13 realm. Is it kind of something you're thinking about or exploring? Is it what's the what's the level of the content, or is it not even an issue? Um, I mean, I think it would be a little more mature as a television show, just because I think television sort of demands that a little bit. But I mean, it's you know a lot of this is going to be ultimately be out of our control, but. You know, one of the things we always tried to look at with Kill Shakespeare is like, okay, like Shakespeare's got dirty jokes and love and, you know, there is, you know, there are passionate romances, but there's not a lot of like sex in Shakespeare. There's a lot of sexual innuendo. So, I mean, I don't think we'd, I mean, I wouldn't want Kill Shakespeare to jump the shark in terms of being some sort of bodice ripping, you know, boobs everywhere kind of thing. Like, I feel like, you know, Game of Thrones at its best, uses sex in a really clever way to get exposition out and to move the story along. Uh, like, I think of the first season where, um, oh, I forget his name, but, um, uh, gosh, the mother of dragons, her, her her older brother, there was a great scene where he's, you know, he's having sex with this woman in, in a tub and he's talking about the history of the dragons, and it works really well. But there's also some stuff in Game of Thrones where you're like, yeah, like, you know, does every scene need to be in a brothel? <laughs> so I feel like that's not a, like that's not very Shakespearean, right? Like there yeah, are brothels. Yeah, every scene have needs to be in the brothel. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, Chris. I knew Chris would back me up on this. <laughs> that yes, every and and no, there's never been a point where we went less boobs. Never, never have Chris or I thought of that. <laughs> So you'll, you might be looking at the more boob side. I mean, you know, and brothels are actually a very Shakespearean thing, but I think we would probably, I think we would probably handle it a little bit differently just because, you know, Shakespeare is not a overly sexy type of brand in terms of like, again, like there's not, you know, there's lots of sex and lots of fun jokes around it. Um, it's more like, I don't know, it'd be interesting. We'll see how it works out. I mean, I mean, Shakespeare has everything in it and so i suspect the tv show will be a little racier the violence of you know i think like shakespeare like i think kill shakespeare is actually really really violent as a comic book series there's a fair amount of violence in it that i think if you did in a realistic way on a tv show people would be like wow you just pulled that guy's eyes out like <laughs> you know and like i mean you know like in one of the books you know juliet murders somebody by running her sword through their their chest and the guy like grabs the sword and like bleeds all over. You know, like there is a lot of blood in Kill Shakespeare. So you know, like in the in the in one of the books, we have a villain who who we have a villain who's planning to tear out the fetus out of another character and eat it in front of her. Um, and he actually he doesn't get to do that, so he just eats somebody else. He eats another character. So there is some pretty weird. I feel like Kill Shakespeare is a, a really weird book. I was rereading the series the other day. And I was like, it's a it's a very weird book. It does a lot of weird things. And I think part of that is because Shakespeare allows you to go through so many different genres. And I think some of it is because we didn't we because we were new writers, I don't 
think we checked ourselves. We just were like, hey, that's a cool idea. Let's do it. And I, I think that's kind of part of the odd charm of the series is that just a lot of weird stuff happens in those books. Maybe it is in PG-13. I have any... <laughs> <laughs> Turns out it'll fit perfectly in the world of Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh, that, that's, that's, that's... I was going to say, that's PG-13 nowadays. The kids have really grown up. Yeah. Now, have you run into many incidents where you had to translate something for the audience, such as we're, we're talking about um, content and like biting of the thumb and things like that? And Shakespeare is huge, and it's a huge event. But modern day audiences aren't going to get it. How how do you translate that, or do you? Uh, I don't think you generally do. I think I mean this is coming. Uh, you know, I just was looking at some of those edits I got from the fourth issue from this dramaturg we work with. And most of his edits came from where I was trying to make sure I'd explain something and everybody understood it and knew it. And um, that's, you know, and, and generally the, the dramaturg was kind of like, you know, you just, you need to trust your audience, right? And I, it's true, you do need to trust your audience. And I think something like Bite Your Thumb, like some people may not get that, but I think if you see an actor biting their thumb at another actor, like you'll get what that means, right? Like a lot of this stuff doesn't need translation; it just needs context. Um, and you know, and again, with I mean, Kill Shakespeare, we we always use when we use Shakespearean dialogue, we always use it as a way to like it's the final seasoning in a scene. It's never really meant to be the scene. Like if we write a scene that is dependent on you understanding what a particular Shakespearean reference is, then we've failed, right? Because, like, it needs to be accessible to somebody who's never read Shakespeare, and they should be able to get what that quote means from what the scene does. And, again, I think, you know, the, the quotes we use are often pretty clear, too. And, yeah, and then if you're a Shakespeare nerd, cool, then you can get into all the fun of, like, oh, yeah, but, like, Othello said this, and he said this to this character, but in the play, like, it was this character saying that same line to Othello. And that's awesome and cool and a great Easter egg for a Shakespeare nerd. But you shouldn't, you know, you, you, don't, you shouldn't write something with that level of complexity because I just don't think it's going to be enjoyable for most of your audience. Now, who was the original target audience for this book? Did you always go in thinking this should be for everybody or were you actually sort of thinking you know i'm writing it for that shakespeare narrative over there in the corner no we definitely we we wanted to air on the side of for everybody like i you know anthony and i always were like look everybody is exposed to shakespeare so everybody has some familiarity with it and so we wanted to make something that anybody could pick up and just be like whether that was the person who hated shakespeare and like saw the title Kill Shakespeare and we're like, I'm just picking this up because I hate Shakespeare. And then hopefully we're like, huh, this is actually kind of a love letter to Shakespeare, but it's pretty awesome. And we've definitely got people who've written to us and been like, yeah, like I always said I hated Shakespeare, but I guess I kind of loved it. I just hated the way it was taught. Um, you know, we didn't want to alienate people who were huge Shakespeare fans. But yeah, like both the the comic book, the TV show, the 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 stage play the board game like anything we do our first rule is is this accessible and like the only thing i think we've tried we tried to do a mobile game and it failed because it wasn't as super accessible it was like a quote game it was like a you know a street fighter but with quotes and it just didn't work because it, you had to know too much shakespeare to really have fun with it so i think that definitely taught us a valuable lesson like 
Kill Shakespeare is about being super accessible and about you kind of, you'll get as much Shakespeare out of it as you want to find. Yeah, I, I hate to criticize you there, but that on the face of that pitch you just gave, that sounds like an awful, awful game, uh, mobile game. Oh, yeah, it was. Oh, ouch. It was, you know what, the, the best part of it, about it was we want, we were using the swipe technology that you have on Android phones, which is a very, it was kind of like a time-based word game. And with the swipe technology, it was really fun to play because, like, this, like this, that swipe-based technology is actually a very fun way to interact. The problem was swipe-based technology works when the, you know, when the technology is like, oh, yeah, you're trying to build a English phrase. And so I know that, like, you know, that, you know, I know that this collection of letters makes this word. And within the context of this sentence, this word makes sense. So I'm pretty sure that's the word you meant to spell, even though you kind of hit G and H, where when you're putting together, like, Shakespearean phrases, it was, it just ended up being too much programming challenge to teach the game to know that, oh, shoot, well, were you trying to swipe to the word the or to the word nunnery? <laughs> and it just like the, the game just didn't, just had no way of knowing like what you were trying to get at. And so it would be frustrating because if you were just slightly off, your whole like turn would be screwed. And the whole fun of that swipe thing is being moving really quick and getting results quickly. And like it was meant to be a very fast paced, kind of super exciting bells and whistles word game that just ended up falling flat. Sounds like an autocorrect nightmare of, uh, you know, in its own regard. Yeah, I mean, we we got to do that again. I think if we were ever going to do that again, we would do, I'd love to do a, I would love to do a casual kind of puzzler game, like, um, you know, like a, like something where you actually start off as like Juliet and then you get to meet Falstaff and Othello and you can switch characters depending on what puzzle you're in and depending on who you interact with. It's like, oh, if I interact with Juliet, the best I can get is like this result. But if I interact with Falstaff, well, he's the perfect character to interact with this character. If I interact with Juliet, she'll get a key. If I interact perfectly with Falstaff, he'll get a key, a sword, and like a gold coin kind of thing. Um, so we, one day we maybe we'll get back at that and kind of show like how the original gang got together. Like how did, how were Falstaff, Juliet, and Othello all together in the Prodigals when Hamlet met them? So do you have other things in the pipe then right now besides the TV show? Uh, Kill Shakespeare wise, like the Juliet series, the four issues. So we've got that coming through, uh, the TV show, um, you know, I think once the Juliet series is out, we'll start thinking about what we want to do next. I think we'll get back. On, I mean, I'd love in a perfect world for us to kind of get back to the release schedule we had previously, which was like a new trade every year. Um, we kind of got slowed down on that. Uh, and then, I mean, you know, if you guys have been uh, kind of ha had your eyes peeled, you may have noticed that Anthony just had a new series, um, Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. Uh, he just had that come out with Dynamite. I think the first issue came out last week. Last Wednesday, I think, was when it came out. Um, Add the I'm, cart. Pardon? Oh, I'm adding that one to the, my cart right now. I, I love Nancy Drew. So I, yeah, it's, a, it's really cool. It's kind of a modern day. I don't know if you've seen Riverdale, the uh, Netflix show, but it's kind of got a bit of that vibe, except like much darker. Nice, nice. I, uh, I, I, have, I have one last topic that I actually want to talk to you about, Connor, because uh, uh, I think... You are, with all due respect to Jim Zub, I think you're the best that person I've ever seen at presenting a welcoming table to people at conventions. And we have we have a lot of 
people that listen to us that are actually creators and and I've I've actually been at shows and talked to some creators and 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 it's their first show or their second show and they're maybe they're not the most outgoing person most comfortable in that situation I try to talk to them about how I think they could present themselves and and I kind of use you as an example and I've even told told people at at conventions if you're near him or walk by him and look at his tables I've actually told people here at the Calgary convention to do that from you to just kind of spy on you about you know hopefully not in a creepy way <laughs> stalk him <laughs> so you're responsible for I, I, I seriously believe I mean you you you're dressed in a unique way that stands out uh, and you're you're always standing you're never sitting and you're you're just uh, you're very welcoming and opening, and you do a great job. I see the amount of product you move, and it's it's because of your personality and the way you do it. But I, I really think you could teach a course to other creators on how to how to table properly. But if you were to just kind of give some of your theories on it or some some observations that you might have to somebody who's who's a, a creator who's not as comfortable, what would you kind of say to them? Oh, first of all, thanks very much. That's, that's a very, that's a very nice compliment. And uh, anything that puts me in the same uh, same world as Jim Zub, I will gladly take because that guy is not just a powerhouse as a writer, um, but he's he's a hell of a marketer and he's he's very good at it. Um, yeah, I mean, it is it is tricky. I mean, I think the key, I think there's a couple of things. Like one, I think anytime you go into a sh- like any interaction with with somebody at a show and your thought is like this is about selling something I I think you're always less successful than if you try to go into it being like okay let's have a good time like I think if if you're focused on the person on the other side of the table having a good time in the interaction they have with you then the sales just come right like you're if you're gonna have an interesting story and if somebody's like, if they're just having fun talking to you about your story or about whatever else happens to come up, I think that goes a long way. And, you know, and I, th- I think the key is like, you know, you have to find out what, you know, how you're comfortable with people. And I, I do have definitely have sympathy because, I mean, um, I would say I'm actually kind of a pretty shy person. Like if, if you took me to a party, I'm the guy who's actually pretty quiet and doesn't necessarily interact that easily but once I get going I can find my comfort level so it it took a little while for me to just kind of figure out that hey this was about me wanting to make the person on the other side of the table laugh or at least look at me being like you're pretty crazy dude um which for me I'm very comfortable with but that's me and I think I think the key is you have to kind of figure out like what do you like best about having an interaction with the person and then have that if it's a you know, if it's kind of more of a significant conversation, then yeah, you're, you know, in, engage that way and it'll work for you um, because it'll be real. You know, if you're the kind of person who likes to make people laugh then you know, do it that way. If you're the kind of person who's sort of nervous, then yeah, get on your feet. You know, I mean, that is one of the key parts of the job is you do need to interact with other people. And if you are a nervous person and, and interacting with people is difficult, you've got to, I think you got to look at it as, hey, this is an opportunity for me to get better at it than I currently am. And yeah, I definitely think being on your feet is huge. It just, it gives you a different energy and people kind of feel like they can approach you. And yeah, you know, I mean, sometimes, especially when I started, I would make, I would give myself a goal like, okay, I've got to say hi to 10 people in the next 10 minutes sort of thing, you know, just to get you out there. And I still have it. When I start a show, you know, if you, if I make a sale on the first 15, 20 minutes of the show, 
it makes it really easy for the rest of the day. If it takes like 30 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, you know, and like nothing's really happening, it is. It's easy, even though I like doing that, it's easy for me to just kind of put my head down and not engage with people. And that's, yeah, that's when I just have to remind myself that, hey, I can either have a lousy time and not sell books, or I can have a great time and not sell books. And I'd rather just have a great time. And, you know, and people are fun. So that's kind of how I take it. And as far as just merchandising, um, I don't know. I, th I think a full table looks better than an empty table. So better to put out every single book you've got and have your table look full than to kind of have four copies of your book and then everything else under the table. Like, you know, that, that's my thought. But, you know, different people have different theories on that. But I, I like a table where you're like, whoa, there's tons of stuff on there. Cool. Well, some oh, t-shirts. Everybody loves t-shirts. T-shirts. And you always had some really cool t-shirts. Some really, really cool designs. Um, yeah, so I think someday some convention should hire you to go along and uh, critique people and give them reports on <laughs> what they can hey, do. You, you, you talk to our friends in Calgary, you know, um, uh, do that job for them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Here's your report card. I'm afraid you didn't do very well. <laughs> but if you take the Connor McCreary course, then you can become... Ten times better, guaranteed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like it. Hey, ten we can market this together. Ten times better, not guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, do do people kind of approach you and go, "Oh, how do you do that? How do you do you get a lot of that?" Yeah, for sure. I mean, because Anthony's awesome that too, right? So I think like you know, and that's partially one of the things that helps too is that we have the two of us. Like we used to be like both of us have to buy that table every single second, and now we're kind of like Anthony doesn't need me like doing the same shield that he, like, you know, I mean, when it gets really busy, we're both there, but otherwise, you know, and then I think, you know, otherwise we kind of let the one guy run with it. And that keeps us fresh too, because it is a grind, right? Like it's tough to stay on for a full day. Um, and, you know, and it's tough to not sometimes get bitter or frustrated when like, you know, you have these, you know, I think anybody who's been in the, in the, in behind a table has had a moment where they've had this like really great conversation with somebody and they seem to love your stuff and they're so excited and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to sell everything on the table. Like this is going to, this one sale is going to be like, this is going to be the next 45 minutes of my con set, right? Like they're going to buy a hundred bucks worth of stuff. And then they're like, oh yeah, I'll have to look you up later. And you're like, oh cool, can I give you my card? And they're like, no, no, it's cool. Okay. And you're sort of like, what the hell happened? I'm so sorry what I did that to you. What the shit was that? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I feel guilty for doing that to you now. Yeah. You know what really hurt was when you spat on it. <laughs> and you've been eating, and you've been eating, you've been eating garlic toast. <laughs> it, it's just, Mo's problem is that he just keeps talking about Tiger Lawyer and not kill Shakespeare. <laughs> so that's the problem. <laughs> Putin. Tiger Lawyer is awesome, though. I, I, I always have time for Tiger Lawyer. Okay? <laughs> and Putin, like I say, that's always on my mind. So, yeah, Tiger yeah. Lawyer, Putin, done. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I know. I was yeah, thinking. Yeah, we, yeah, but we, yeah, we have to do have people come up, and we're always happy. And so, if there is any list, if there are any creators out there who are listening to this, and they've been to shows, and they've seen myself or Anthony, and they've been kind of like, oh, I wish I, you know, I'd love to pick those guys' brains, but they seem too busy, or I don't know, they probably don't want to share their secrets. No, for sure, we love. Like I, I, you know, I've, I'm, I've now been in the game long enough that I feel one of the things that's important to do is to just try to help other people. I mean, I think we always wanted to help other people, but now, you know, before I think if somebody asked me what I was doing, I'd be like, oh, I don't know. I mean, it's, I don't know if I'm doing anything right, but you know, now, yeah, I feel like there's some stuff we can share, and we're, we're always happy to share it.
You like helping. We do. Hey, and you know what? If you guys ever wanted to do a special edition just on, you know, like, you know, get me and Jim Zub and somebody else on there talking about, you know, how to how to sell your stuff and so, you know sell yourself, I'm in. Yes. You know what? We've thought about it. I We've thought about that. it. Yes. We might have to do that a video podcast in some way. <laughs> you might have to, yeah. Oh, next time Zub and I are like both in Calgary or Edmonton or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I think that could be valuable for people. I mean, I really think it's something that, that, uh, that, like I say, you do very well. Zub does very well. And it's like, and you know what? There's some people out there and they have an excellent product. And I've met them and they're really nice people. And they just don't know at the convention how to, how to, kind of approach it. So I, I think that would be a, a great thing if we could hook something like that up at some point. Sure. I'd be, I'd definitely be in. Awesome. Well, um, any last questions you two? Well, you know, we, it would be, it would be silly of us to not at least hit quickly on, uh, on Sherlock Holmes versus Houdini and of course, uh, Assassin's Creed and just what it was like to work outside of the kill Shakespeare realm. You know, it was way, easier than i thought and by easier i mean we'd been warned a little bit that sometimes license work could be tricky and frustrating and you know at worst it could be kind of soul destroying and we i think we just got lucky i mean holmes versus houdini was something that dynamite brought to us because um you know some of the people there had always kind of wanted to they've done a bunch of houdini stuff or holmes sherlock holmes stuff previously and they just kind of always thought it'd be cool if Houdini and Holmes were in the same story. And I remember, you know, I remember talking to the team and they were like, is this a, is this a dumb idea? And we were like, no, it's a brilliant idea. And they're like, do you want to write it? And we were like, sure. <laughs> um, so that was easy. And, you know, like nobody holds those licenses. So that was, you know, there wasn't anybody looking over your neck. And with Assassin's Creed, I mean, Ubisoft was a dream. They were so accommodating and so encouraging, and they they really gave us the keys to the car in terms of like, hey, we want you to start building out the modern day mythos more so than we've had a chance to in the games. And we were like, what about this? What about that? What about this? And a couple of our, you know, a couple of things we kind of suggested to them were a little heretical, I would say, in terms of like how you currently view like the Templar and the assassins and stuff. And they were just like, yeah. We love that. Go ahead. And I mean, the only time we ever got notes was basically like, oh, that's like a technical issue with the with the technology of the animus. Like you haven't really done that right or that couldn't happen the way the tech is set up. And then a few times they kind of had stocks and they're like, well, but couldn't the tech work that way? Like we've never said it couldn't. So we actually got to like push forward how their core like, you know, mechanic works. So. I, I couldn't say enough good things about Ubisoft. In fact, those two experiences were so good that I got approached to do a, a license book with another publisher on something that I probably would have been like, I don't know, like, well, you know, these worlds are so well defined. There's not going to be any room to do anything new. And because of these experiences, I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to jump in with both feet and, and try it out. And so far, that's been a great experience, too. Were you a, are you a gamer? Did you play the game beforehand, or did you just play it when you got the job? Or yeah, I, of, I, I hadn't played. I hadn't played any Assassin's Creed. I mean, I knew it because I had some friends who were really into Assassin's Creed, so I knew the world decently well. Um, but yeah, I hadn't played a lot. <laughs> so I I recently with my with my youngest, uh, you know, my eldest, my daughter's about three and a bit. So I recently got her on the Wii, 
Um, and the only two systems that are in my house, and this will tell you how long it's been since I was like an everyday gamer, are my Wii, which isn't that bad, and my <laughs> Sega Dreamcast. Oh. <laughs> I think you'll be playing fact, Assassin's Creed playing, on I was, that. Playing, I was playing Sword of the Berserk like three days ago and being like, I still can't get past the first freaking 15 minutes of this stupid game. <laughs> So, so does Ubisoft actually uh, give you a, a Assassin's Creed Bible um, to, to reference? Because I mean, from what I've played, that is a huge set of games that incorporate. It's just a huge world, uh, multiple timelines. Uh, do they give you something to actually catch you up to speed? Yeah, I mean, they did give us, they did give us a map, they did give us, like, this awesome hardcover Bible that kind of basically goes through all the major characters. I mean, there's a couple of really great wikis out there that can help you as well. Uh, and we had really good access to the head writer, or one of the two head writers of the games. And so, like, if we ever had a question, like, a lot of times we would write our scripts, and then just, like, you know, it would be, like, a page, and there'd be a couple lines of dialogue and a couple panels, and we'd be like, here's what we think should happen Richard, can this happen? And like, you know, before we dug too deep and Richard would just either come back and be like, yeah, for sure, you could totally have that happen or no, this would need to happen instead. Um, so yeah, but I mean, the, you know, I think one of the things was like, one of the cool things about Assassin's Creed is the, all the historical time periods, uh, you know, have like, they do add a huge amount of depth to the game. But until we went into our third arc, we didn't visit a time period that they'd already done. So we were establishing new assassins, new parts of the world that the Templar and the assassins had had conflict over. So we got to kind of create all of that without having to be um, worried about making sure that we'd gotten, you know, that we'd followed up what had already happened in that time period. It wasn't until the third arc where we got did some stuff in Florence, which is like one of the hotbeds for the series, that we had to kind of dig in and be like, okay, well... During these years, this character was like literally on a farm in rural Italy, so we can use that character because they wouldn't have been doing something else at that time. That was the only time we did really get into the nitty gritty and make sure that we weren't putting an assassin somewhere where they, where the canon has already said they were not. But I love that stuff. I think that stuff's kind of cool. No, it's uh, it sounds really fascinating, and and it is an interesting take. To hear somebody say that working on on licensed properties is you know was a good experience because I don't know that we get that all that much. Yeah, we've we've been really fortunate. I'm sure Anthony would say the same stuff. I mean, you know, and Holmes. I mean, the, his new you know Nancy Drew Hardy Boys um, is you know I mean it's it's a licensed property of a sort, but it's also something where he was able to get a lot of freedom to do something new. I mean, you know, you could kind of look at Kill Shakespeare. I mean, you know, with the new you know the new Juliet series. I mean, it's kind of a licensed property in a weird way, right? I mean, I was joking to somebody the other day that, yeah, our licensors just happen to be like every English teacher and professor on the planet. Yeah. Right? They all feel this ownership of Shakespeare and they're all like, no, 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 no. You know, like, but they're great. You know, like just just like we had this scenario, people who love Shakespeare have always given us so much room. And, you know, I'm really excited to see what people think of the new Juliet series. I mean, you know, you know, our, our, our the quick elevator pitch with that one is, you know, it's about five months after the end of the play, and you've got a Juliet who is not entirely sure she wants to stay alive because of what happened to Romeo, and 
it takes another horrific death to sort of push her in a different direction. Um, in fact, we kind of steal a little bit of Hamlet's story for her in a bit of a weird way to set her up. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a story of murder most foul. It's a story of a woman sort of finding herself after a tragedy she never thought she could overcome. And uh, yeah, it's also got it's also got some some pretty significant betrayal in the story too. It's uh, I think in some ways it's the most adult of the uh, of the books we've done. Well, I mean, we have a, a tradition here, so let's just go through it here. We have a tradition on We Talk Comics for for a guest when we're lucky enough to have one on with us. And this little segment we like to call "Plug Your Shit." So <laughs> Connor, go ahead. One oh, last hey, good thanks. plug. Thank you. So yeah, so Kill Shakespeare Juliet's coming out on on March 29th. Um, for those of you who are already fans of Kill Shakespeare, uh, this is going to be a great Easter egg series for you. You're going to get to find out how Juliet came to be the character you know and love in the series. Um, and it's it puts her through the ringer. I, like I, you know, I was just saying, I think in some ways it's the, it's the most intense journey we've put a character on so far. <laughs> Boy, Juliet always gets... <laughs> for those of you who know the series, you know that Juliet goes through some pretty significant stuff in her <laughs> books. Um, I think that's why she's kind of our favorite character. She's definitely the strongest character because I think <laughs> Hamlet would crack like a twig if he had to do what she does. <laughs> But for those of you who are new to Kill Shakespeare um, and are kind of intimidated by the idea of like, oh my gosh, it's already four books and it sounds like it has this huge mythology, this is something you can easily pick up to find out whether Kill Shakespeare is going to be your cup of tea, and it will be. Um, it's going to be four issues. It's going to be a very straightforward story of kind of uh, of a woman seeking revenge. And yeah, it doesn't matter how much you know about Shakespeare or Romeo and Juliet specifically, you're going to love the hell out of this book. Um, it's creepy. It's funny at times. Uh, it's very touching. Um, you know, our editor has, has had a couple of tears in his eyes already. Um, I think we're incredibly proud of everything we've done with Kill Shakespeare. And I don't want to say this is better than everything we've done before. Cause it's it, what it is, is really just, it's different than anything we've done before. But I, I think it stands alongside anything we've done. And, you know, <laughs> selfishly, I'd say I, I hope this gets some attention. I, I really think it's something that people really enjoy they read. And I, I you know, selfishly kind of hope it gets a little talk come Harvey and Eisner time. I think I think we're that proud of the work. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Connor, for coming on. And we're going to go OUT in this episode. But just want to thank you once again. I mean, we're really glad to have met you and gotten to know you. Uh, since we've been doing this show, and I guess we'll see you not here in Calgary this time, but in Edmonton, unless you're coming in to, uh, to maybe teach people out a table in Calgary. <laughs> but, uh, but we'll see you in Edmonton. And you can absolutely, though, uh, stop direct messaging me those birthday suit selfies uh, <laughs> anytime now. <laughs> But I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, you, you could, but you could not. Yeah. Well, well, well you, you no. made a mistake by leaving the ball in my court. I say balls. And if we have any listeners that are, survived that, um, I'd just like to mention that we, we were talking about Kill Shakespeare, the board game earlier. The, the game is available both at Amazon and IDWgames.com. Well, that's... Yeah, I can Google and uh, podcast at the same time. Good job. Thank you for plugging my shit. And uh, 
I'll, I'll do a quick follow-up too. Is uh, if, you, if you wait, hold on, that sounded wrong. Um, uh, if anybody if anybody does buy the game, uh, please do tweet us because we've got some cool bonus stuff that we'll uh, send you via email that will make the game even more awesome. Well, well, we'll see you in Edmonton. Like I say, we'll buy one there and uh, we'll play it that night. Sounds good, that's, man. That's right. We'll all we can we'll go back to your hotel room. We'll just sit there. And all right, Connor McCreary, thank you so much for coming on. Best of luck with uh, with everything Kill Shakespearean and uh, and and everything else you got. <laughs>